My name is Ben Greenfield, and on this episode of the Ben Greenfield Life Podcast. I encourage all people, think, use your own mind, your own judgment, but it doesn't mean you can't learn from other people. You can't, you can't improve on your, your life or your parenting by learning from other people, but never subjugate your own views or your own values because some expert told you that you should do it a different way. Faith. Family, fitness, health, performance, nutrition, longevity, ancestral living, biohacking, and a whole lot more. Welcome to the show. What's the problem with wine today? Wine is highly processed, just like our food. I like wine just the same as you probably do. I drink a glass of wine almost every evening. But here's the problem. Three giant wine companies sell over 50% of the wine in the U.S. Over 76 additives are currently legally approved for use in winemaking. We're talking dyes, thickeners, and GMO yeast. The top 20 wines sold in the U.S. contain very high levels of sugar and alcohol. And so basically, we're drinking poison a lot of the time. That's why you wake up and have a headache and you feel blah. I can drink. I don't do it, but I can drink two or three glasses of the type of wine that I actually drink. It's organic and biodynamic. It's sugar-free. It's low alcohol. It's lab-tested for purity. It's grown on small family farms. It's keto-approved. It's paleo-approved. It's got free shipping right to my door. It's called Dry Farm Wines. It's the best natural wine out there. They've got access to 55,000 acres of organic vineyards. All right, so a lot of these come from Europe where there's healthy soil and dynamic biodiversity using natural wine farming. They work with 600 small family farmers sourcing from over 600 of these small family growers, all who make their wine by hand using things like regenerative farming, avoiding machinery. Dry farm wines even helps to teach them a lot of the tactics that make for better wine. They save a billion gallons of water with this wine because you don't have to pour a bunch of water on wine. That makes it sweet and juicy. And we want our wine to be antioxidant, rich and tannic. And that's the way these dry farm wines are. So I call them dry farm. They don't use much water, so it's better for the planet. Less than one-tenth of 1% of the world's wines are grown to the standards of dry farm. But they pick them out for you. They cut out all of the work for you. And so you know guilt-free when that box arrives, every single one has been screened. They got free shipping, straight to your door, free of charge, 100% happiness. That means any bottle you don't like, they'll replace it or they'll refund it. And better yet, they're going to give any of my listeners an extra bottle of Dry Farm Wines in their first box for a penny. Yep, one penny. Because it's alcohol, they can't sell it for free. But here's what you do. You go to bengreenfieldlife.com forward slash dry farm wines. That's bengreenfieldlife.com slash dry farm wines. And that's all you need to get started with your dry farm wines adventure today. Drink the same wine I do. bengreenfieldlife.com slash dry farm farm wines. Magnesium. I love it. I pop, actually, I actually pop six a night of this magnesium breakthrough stuff because it's got all the different forms of magnesium that are out there. All right. So let me give you a list. Okay. If you're irritable or anxious, if you struggle with insomnia, if you get muscle cramps or twitches, if you have high blood pressure, if you're sometimes constipated, those are all symptoms of magnesium deficiency and just a few of them because magnesium is involved in over 600 biochemical reactions in your body. This magnesium breakthrough stuff that I use replaces magnesium because it uses seven different forms. Most companies don't do that. So your body can actually use and absorb all the different kinds of magnesium and you're getting the best of all the best kinds of magnesium. A lot of supplements use the cheap kinds that your body can't use or absorb, not this breakthrough stuff. And what they're going to do is a Black Friday special from November 21st to November 29th. You get magnesium breakthrough, but they're going to add in all of the other Bioptimizers best-in-class products with a 25% discount. 
That's pretty huge. So for that Black Friday special, you go to buyoptimizers.com slash Ben and use code Ben10. That gets 25% off of any order. Ben10 at buyoptimizers.com forward slash Ben. And if you go starting November 21st all the way up to November 29th, you'll be able to take advantage of that exclusive Black Friday offer with that 25% discount on the whole shebang, the whole catalog. Check it out. Buyoptimizers.com slash Ben. Buyoptimizers.com slash Ben. So it was back in 2016, I was backstage speaking at a conference. I had this exhausting 24-hour schedule ahead of me. And one of my friends came up to me and held out his hand and offered me this, you know, so-called like smart drug, right? Like that movie Limitless. It, it was like this nootropic blend of a whole bunch of different ingredients. You know, I'm not that smart. So I just, I swallowed them all. I probably should have asked more questions, but fortunately things turned out pretty well. As a matter of fact, over the next 24 hours, I felt like I'd taken like modafinil or something like that, but with none of like the, the edgy jittery side effects and I slept just fine. So task crushing, mind sharpening, it just fueled my brain. It felt like for the next 48 hours, again, even though I wasn't up all night, it wasn't like a central nervous system stimulant. Turns out they brought this stuff to market about a year later and it's called Qualia Mind. Qualia Mind. It's 28 different high purity vegan non-GMO ingredients that provide you with some of the best mental performance fuel on the planet. Uh, Clarity, focus, willpower, mood, very, very good stuff. It's like brain food. So you get 50% off of this stuff right now. And if you use my code, an extra 15% on top of that. So you go to neurohacker.com slash Ben, N-E-U-R-O hacker.com slash Ben and use code BGF. It'll get you an extra 15% off so you can start experiencing what the best brain fuel on earth can do for you. Well, folks, I'm pretty stoked about today's show because I have some of my dear friends on the call with me. This couple is actually featured in my upcoming Boundless Parenting book because, well, gosh, I mean, you're, you're going to hear about something that I was first impressed with when I met them. And that was this concept that they described to me as we were chatting about childhood and like habits and comings and goings as parents. And they were talking about this thing called a wake up lounge. And I was just like, oh my gosh, this is so cool. And I still do something like it uh, today with my family in terms of you, you, you may have heard if you're listening in how I will wake up and I'll burn incense and I'll put on some nice music and then I'll call the boys down and we'll sit and we'll meditate and we'll talk and we'll hug and we sing a song together and sometimes dance as a family. Well, I got a lot of the ideas for that from the couple who you are about to hear me interview. Uh, their names are Patrick and Lori Gentempo. And Patrick, uh, you, you may have seen him around before. Like he, he gets out there on a lot of a lot of videos. He's the host of several documentaries uh, that you may have seen. Uh, but he's known as kind of like a philosopher slash entrepreneur. He's the co-founder and the host for a company called Revealed Films, which is the company that produces these these docu series uh, like, uh, gosh, Psychedelics Revealed, COVID Revealed, uh, Christ Revealed, and and a whole bunch of other ones that uh, that I'll link to in the show notes if you want to check those out. He's also a practicing chiropractor. I've been adjusted by him at his home uh, before, and uh, he's not only a talented chiropractic doctor, but he has also gone so far as to give testimony testimony to Congress and to the White House Commission on Complementary and Alternative Medicine. He has a TEDx talk called Unleashing the Power of Philosophy, and um, he's just a man over after my own heart, and a really, 
Really great guy. And I would say one of the few people that outshines him, of course, is his significant other, Lori, which I'm sorry, Patrick, it always happens to me. People think I'm cool, then they meet my wife. and <laughs> yeah. They say the truth hurts, but in this case, it doesn't. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So so Lori is um, kind of uh, Patrick's uh, partner in crime. She's the co-founder of Action Potential Holdings, where she helps guide and co-create projects that align with her values, that impact the world. And she's the director of the Gen Temple Family Foundation, which is a nonprofit devoted to personal and global healing. She has in the past been pretty involved with uh, Dispenza and the Dispenza meditation retreats. And we'll get a chance to talk about how they wove meditation into their parenting as well. So a ton that we can talk about. And remember, they're featured in the book. So if you guys are like, gosh, we barely even felt like the surface got scratched and what the Gen Temples do and how they raise their kids, don't worry. They're in the book. Uh, it'll be at BoundlessParentingBook.com. So you can take a deep, deep dive into Patrick and Lori if you just want to stalk them even more after you hear this episode. All of the show notes are going to be at bengreenfieldlife.com slash gentempo, G-E-N-T-E-M-P-O, bengreenfieldlife.com slash gentempo. Patrick and Lori, welcome. Thanks for having us. Thank you. And incidentally, just for a quick clarification, uh, we'll work on friends and family, but I don't formally have a chiropractic practice anymore, so nobody should be trying to find out where to see me. <laughs> Everybody's just trying trying to like set down the phone now as they were dialing or I suppose Googling Patrick Gentempo, Cairo, where to try. Okay, so I already alluded to this, so we'll just jump right in because honestly, this was super intriguing to me and I want to hear about your kids and where they're at right now because I know they're kind of grown up. But just a, a quick introduction of where you're at in terms of how many kids you have, how old they are and what they do, and then jump straight into that idea of the wake up lounge, just because I was like the first thing when I was talking with you guys about parenting, I was like, holy cow, this is amazing. So go ahead. We have a total of three kids. Our oldest 25 is uh, from a previous marriage for me, but um, was uh, you know, a part of our raising him since uh, you know, he was a, a young child. And uh, we also have a 21-year-old at the time of this recording, 21-year-old girl and an 18-year-old boy. As far as the wake-up lounge is concerned, that's really Lori's uh, you know, conception. She's the one who, who thought about that, created that, and developed it you know, into our family's lives. So I'm going to let her uh, talk about that. Yeah, it was. it's funny because what inspired it was this feeling of dread morning after morning after hurrying the kids to grab projects, lunches, uh, homework, get in the car, race to school, and drop them off. And then it's, as soon as I got out of the car, I would feel this moment of sadness, like it was wasted. And then I'm watching them walk into the school with all these kids ready to face the world. And I just felt like, gosh, they don't seem set up right. You mean like like some kind of like a touch point early in the day? Yeah, like their 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 hearts are full. They're they're ready. They're strong. They're feeling confident instead of, you know, survival mode. Survival of mode versus like a coherent energy about them. Yeah, it's a physiologic, you know, what, what's their physiologic disposition? You know, are they in defense physiology because, you know, the, you kind of pop out of bed last minute and, and you know, uh, are racing to get everything together and get out the door and get to school? Or, are you, you know, when, when entrepreneurs learn this, uh, you know, they, they talk about, you know, when the morning, when the day, right? So that's got it. That's even more especially true for children in our mind. Yeah, I, I agree. And, you know, like I mentioned, it's something that 
we thrive on now at our house, that morning coming together. And, and it's, it's almost like a bookend, right? We have our morning coming together that involves all of us sitting on the floor, doing our spiritual disciplines journal, chatting about what's coming up in the day. Often we sing a song. Sometimes if I feel like the energy needs a little bit of a boost, I'll put on like anywhere from like a eight to 10 minute long, like you typically like a spiritual kind of like a churchy song, like clap your hands, praise the Lord. And we'll, we'll be dancing around the kitchen table. And then in the evening after dinner, after we've cleaned up uh, and kind of gotten ready for bed, we do something similar in the evening. We gather, we meditate, and that, it also involves conversations about the day and what to expect, et cetera. But I'd love to hear a little, little bit more details about what your guys has actually looked like, like what you do with your kids when you get them up in the morning for that touch point. It's similar to what you described. For me, I always light incense because for me, there's a there's a morning ritual I have that I bless my home with my energy. And I light that incense with intention that we're all blessed for that day. We turn on the appropriate soft-toned music. We light the fire. Um, and then when everyone gathers, we kind of just get cozy and sit around. And, and actually, we don't do this as much anymore. I'll get into that. But then I would take a special drink order, like it's, it's a matcha or a chai or whatever they're having. So it makes it more like they're kind of ordering up to at the lounge. And then it's just, you know, some mornings it's not a lot of talking. The whole point of it for us is quiet, really, and just easing into the day, not driving a process or anything like that. But I do remember times we would talk about affirmations and start to create those for them or help them create their own. So it's a great time for that. As far as best practices go, it's it doesn't need to be necessarily more than 30 minutes of, you know, just it's a matter of just getting up earlier, getting things ready earlier. Um, and then just allowing that 30 minutes or more, what's become for us now, it's just Patrick and I mostly in the lounge now. Our 18-year-old is still there, but Patrick and I like to sit there for almost two hours some mornings. But <laughs> that's kind of the basics. You mean when you sit there for two hours, are you talking? Are you just like sipping tea or? We are. We're, we're, it's actually become more ceremonial for us. We, we're doing some breath work together as a couple you know, it depends on what's going on in our life. Sometimes that's a kind of a quiet time too. And sometimes there's things we're talking through. Mostly it's spiritual philosophy time for us together. Yeah. It's almost like, you know, there's, I think you described it in the book as creating an environment of peace and harmony. And to me, it feels like the kids, when they wake up, they they really begin to depend on that and rely upon it and just just feel very special. I'm sure a lot of people listening have experienced Christmas morning, you know, with the footy pajamas and the stockings and maybe the the hot chocolate and the smell of peppermint or whatever else. But just imagine that like every morning, like what if you were a kid and you could wake up every morning and you knew that when you went downstairs or upstairs or wherever the family gathered in the morning, that it could be like that. It's just magical. What I like about it is that it, it anchors in a bias, meaning that I think, you know, our bodies anticipate, you know, the day, our bodies anticipate, you know, what life is going to be or what it might bring us. And, you know, once you have a bias of, of waking up in the morning uh, and easing into the day in, in, in this way, which is in my mind, really a spiritual practice. You know, the days that that doesn't happen, you crave going back to this as compared to getting addicted to the chemicals of stress every morning and waking up and then 
when suddenly you have a peaceful morning, you're almost like going through a withdrawal wondering, you know, what's wrong? How come I'm not feeling the tension, you know, of, of the morning that I should be feeling typically? And, you know, we don't have to get in, into, I think everybody would know that's listening to this, the, uh, you know, the, the health implications of that long term, the biological implications of what happens to a body when it biases one way versus the other as, as you know, when it habituates that. One of our premises around this is the importance of environments and how environments can shape you, shape your life, shape your experience of life, and then shape also your your uh, interactions with other people, in this case, your family. So, you know, with Lori, she's really, I mean, even when we travel, she goes into a hotel room, the first thing, the incense is out, candles are up, you probably shouldn't say that because you're not allowed to really light this stuff in hotel rooms. <laughs> and, you know, when you create an environment, it can change everything, and, and that's what this does as a ritual for our family. Yeah. It's funny you say about the hotels because since we started doing this with our kids, I mean, you you guys know, like I travel a lot and a lot of times I'm traveling solo. Now, when I go into a hotel, I intentionally, one of the first things I do is start to set it up for the next morning so that I know when I wake up and a lot of times I've got like a devotional or something I travel with and I, and I sit cross-legged on the floor of the hotel, but I travel now with incense sticks, with essential oil. I don't, I don't necessarily burn sage and, you know, smoke out the hotel room, but I've, I've taken this routine on the road. And again, like not even when my family's with me, just solo. And there's something about waking up, you know, it's just as though you were, you know, primal human, I don't know, sleeping in a cave and you hear the birds song and the sun shining through the, through the cave, you know, and and there's, it's almost like this, this sacred time in the morning that presents itself to you that if you're willing to resist the phones and jumping right into the fray and the work and the school and everything else that you guys saw that your kids were getting exposed to and you drop them off at school and they hadn't had this in the morning, it sets up this beautiful, beautiful way to start the day. And I, I think, and I would imagine you'd agree with me, perhaps most importantly, you're teaching your kids when you adopt a practice like this to actually prioritize their spirits and their souls and their bodies and their mind before they jump into the business of the day, you know? Totally hundred percent. And now you know, two of the three kids are out of the house. So it's interesting to watch when they go in, you know, go out on their own as young adults, uh, you know, wh- where that leads and the impact it has. And, and you can definitely see how they are setting up their lives on their own as adults and the impact this has had or the positive impact that this has had. Yeah, like our daughter just moved into an apartment with her boyfriend last year. And sure enough, she, you know, I didn't say a word or ask or anything, but just going to look at their apartment. She had the incense, the candles, you know, all all the things. So it was cool. Nice. Just don't tell my kids about the drink thing because we didn't start doing that. And that they're they're super foodies and they're going to be ordering like orange mocha frappuccinos with cinnamon sprinkles on top. And that's going to add a little, another 20 minutes to our to our wake up morning. So so the, the wake up lounge is, I know, one part of several of kind of the uh, what, what I would say, the traditions and the habits and the rituals and routines that really leapt out to me from your chapter in the book. And I'd like to talk about a few others, but I actually want to backpedal a little bit because one of the things that that really made an impression upon me when I was reading about your unique parenting approach was you kind of had like three main things. And I, I don't know if this is influenced by your background in philosophy or whatever, Patrick, but you, you list premises, 
values and purpose. Premises, values, and purpose is, is that being kind of like the compass that guided you over your parenting years. And I would love to hear a little bit more about, uh, well, I'd love to hear about all three of them, uh, whichever one you you choose as the highest priority to put first. But tell me more about the premises, the values, and the purpose. Well, the, the three are actually related to each other. Um, and you're right. It comes from you know my work as a, call me a practical philosopher or applied philosopher, where I use the branches of philosophy to sort through my thinking and understanding and then try to create a uh, a non-contradictory or congruent way to approach whatever it is in life. So whether it's a business, whether it's our parenting, whether it's um, you know our health and fitness, you, you name any category of life, and we have premises, values, and purpose that, that surround it. So when we became parents, uh, you know, it was clear to me that we needed to take this approach towards life and apply it to our parenting. And it was quite revelatory uh, as far as, you know, when you start to sit down and, and, and sort these things out saying, you know, what, what are my premises? What do I believe? You know, what, what am I operating from? Um, you know, what are my values? You know, when, when it comes to this particular subject and, and what's my purpose? And there, there is a little bit of a sequence to this, uh, but those three things are related. Okay. So when, when you say the word premises, you know, I'm kind of like nodding my head, like I kind of sort of know what that is, but how, how would you define premise and what were some of the, some of the main premises that you guys wove into your parenting? So a premise is a, a belief element that is driving your choices and actions, whether you know it or not. We all have them. Um, and they come mostly from our mother's fathers, teachers, and preachers. Yeah. We've, we've picked them up along the way unwittingly. Um, and, and for the vast majority of people, they don't take the time to uh, to really consciously either choose their premises or assess their premises. And they can be very debilitating. Like, you know, don't bite off more than you can chew. Don't don't be something you're not. I mean, there, there's so many things we've heard along the way that get integrated into our, our our subconscious that are driving us. And we don't even know that they're there. So it's it's important, I think, to become consciously aware of what premises or views of reality that you hold and to uh once they're identified to make sure that you're living consistently with them you know some of them are like i said things that maybe you picked up in a book maybe things you picked up from a mentor like one one of our first premises uh came from my mentor was dr nathaniel brandon who was ayn rand's intellectual heir which is what got me into philosophy and uh what he said was um and i don't know if this was his original thought but he was the one who gave it to me he said, no child was ever made good by telling them how bad they are. It just struck me as a truth, a fundamental truth. And we decided that we were going to consciously parent based on that particular premise. Um, and there's, a, there's other ones that we can, we can get into if you want me to share them. So one was no child was ever made good by telling them how bad they are. And that, that makes sense. I, I assume that you're, you're talking about focusing on the positive and, and highlighting the good decisions that they make in life rather than, than beating them up for the bad decisions. Uh, but yeah, you had like, I think, gosh, more, more than half a dozen different premises. And, and I'd love to hear a, a few of the others that I suppose you, you would, I don't know, like Jordan Peterson has his 12 rules for life, you know, are these kind of like your, your guys' little rules for parenting? Yeah, this, these are the premises. Mean these these are our view of reality. Saying the, these are truths when it comes to parenting that we need to be aware of, um, and uh, yeah, so similar to what you're saying about Jordan Peterson. Um, so you know, just quickly, I'll just do a quick lightning round of one of the best things parents can do for their children is love each other. 
Um, and so the, and the, the quick riff on that, and, and Lori was really the champion of this, uh, is that, you know, a lot of times parents will lose their relationship for the kids. They get they divide and conquer. They get busy. And next thing you know, their relationship really isn't very connected, very deep, very um, nurturing, very loving. And so we consciously had to choose time away from our kids to continue to connect making sure date nights were a ritual every week and, and several other practices that would support that particular premise. Yeah. And I might interrupt you as you go through a few of these premises, but I think another really important part of that, and I, I didn't witness this so much in my own parents. Like I just kind of assumed that everything was okay. And actually my parents got divorced later on in life uh, when I was a teenager. And I found out then that going on behind the scenes, like they just never really had much in the way of like dates and one-on-one -on -one time. And there wasn't a lot of, you know, public displays of affection to us kids or anything like that. We just always kind of like assume, well, mom and dad are mom and dad and they're in love with each other and, and having a great time. And now my wife and I, you know, the same as it sounds like you guys did, we intentionally make sure that our kids see us, you know, nuzzling each other, kissing, going on dates, doing all the things that people deeply in love do. And I think it does display the essences of a good relationship. But I think also kind of like that wake up lounge, like the kids just feel as though they're they're safe because their parents are in love. You know, their parents are in union. Their parents are bonded. It's almost like they feel like they have a little bit more of a rock and a fortress to depend upon. That's true. And you really can't fake this. So, you know, it's like you can't fake it. So if, you know, th the best advice here is, you know, really put your relationship as a priority and work on it if 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 it's, you know, troubled. Yeah. The next premise is kind of a, you know, similar to what we're saying is children learn more by example than by words. And um, and I think it's just very important that they're always watching you. They're always learning. They're always seeing, you know, what you do. And it's, you know, you can try to tell them that they need to work out, they need to be in shape, they need to eat, you know, healthy, whatever it might be. But when they see you doing it, and that's their entire experience on an ongoing basis, I, I believe that that, that ingrains even more um, as far as what their behaviors uh, are, what, you know, what kind of thoughts and behaviors are anchored into them. So uh, so we, we try to lead by example as parents, um, and, and that was, uh, you know, something that we were very conscious of. Yeah, you know what's crazy, by the way, Patrick, is – I went through and like ran some stats on some of the repetitive themes, some of the common threads throughout this book and this concept. And, and a lot of times, like, and I knew these parents hadn't necessarily all talked to each other and, and schemed this out. This concept of more is caught than taught, that, that phrase was actually used by three different parenting couples who I don't think even knew each other, was repeated. It was like 70% of the parents in the book at some point said, essentially, your kids watch you and they pay more attention to what you do than what you say. I think one of the best examples of this is, is just like the phone right? You know, or screen time or whatever. Like I know when I glance at my, let's say we're out at dinner with another family and I'm kind of doing that, like glance at your phone underneath the table, kind of down by your chair type of thing. And I see that sideways glance from my kids. Like I know that all they're thinking is, oh wait, dad tells us to be fully present, engage in conversation, make eye contact, but it's okay for me to be looking at my phone during a, during a dinner out with friends. That's a perfect example of yeah, of what we're saying here, and and there's a deeper root to that that Daniel Brandon would teach, 
you know, and this is where you know contradictions, you know, this whole concept of, of contradictions can lead to destruction. It's like if you sit with your kid and you tell them, "Hey, listen, Johnny, uh, it, you always should tell the truth. It's it's you, know, you shouldn't lie. It's it's not good character to lie, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera." And then ten minutes later, you know, there's uh, somebody at the door that's that's ringing, you know, looking for you, and and the kid answers the door and says, "Oh, so and so's here." Or somebody calls on the phone, "So and so's here." And the response of the parent is, uh, uh, tell them I'm not here, you know, telling the kid to lie for you <laughs> if you just told them that, you know, they're supposed to have integrity and not do that. So, you know, there's there's thousands of examples of that. But I can tell you that kids, especially in the younger ages, maybe don't point out contradictions in their parents' behavior or a lack of integrity, but they are for sure seeing it and it's leaving an impression. And it actually goes just a little bit deeper than that with mirror neurons. So their their bodies have cells that are actually mirroring everything we're doing all the time. <laughs> yeah, that's a really good point. And I mean, like another example would be, you know, exercise. Like, like I will assign my kids workouts. I don't necessarily do all their workouts with them. But man, oh man, like when they see me heading out the door to the gym, I know that they're not thinking, dad told me I need to do 100 pushups today. But, you know, look at him sitting around, you know, not move. So, you know, I, I, anytime I have the opportunity, even if it's just like a Pomodoro break, cause I'll like stop after a half hour work and do a hundred jumping jacks. I will literally walk out my office cause I work from home, go upstairs, go by their room, by the hallway, by their room, do the hundred jumping jacks. And then in a loud voice announce something like, Hey, I'm doing my Pomodoro break. And then I'll go back downstairs just because I know that that, that goes way farther than me telling them to, you know, stop every once in a while, do some pushups during your, during your, your, your homeschooling guys. Yeah. I mean, you know, it, 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 and I, I think that's a great practice to not only think that it's important that you do it, but to, to put it on display when, when it's practical to do so, so they could see it. I think that's great. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I know another one of your premises was how a child starts their day is critical, which we obviously just kind of established with that, that wake up lounge, for example. Uh, but what about the family rituals one? That was another one that, that stood out to me. I could tell you, and I don't know, you know, everybody's at different place in their parenting, you know, again, we're, we're getting close to being empty nesters. But what I can tell you is that um, these rituals stick, meaning they, at this age, you know, as, as young adults, still talk about and want to engage in the rituals. For an example, you know, I grew up in an you know, Italian household, Italian family, Italian. So we had Italian Sunday, right? And uh, so the smells in the house of the sauce cooking and, you know, creating the antibody, there's this whole thing that comes together where the, where the kids have their whole life been immersed in that ritual. And then when we lived around parents, relatives, et cetera, we'd gather, you know, with other Italians that we're related to and have these, these Sunday experiences, which I had when I was a kid. So we, we brought that into the house. So they still, they, they come over for Sunday, you know, Italian dinner. We still get together. There's a music playlist that we have, and uh, and you know it's just one example of, of a ritual that bonds them or anchors them to a happy childhood. And you know I have to tell you that uh, the greatest opportunity that an adult has to be happy is having a happy happy childhood. Yeah. Yeah. And, and honestly, like that whole concept, this was another common thread. Like it wasn't necessarily every week, but some kind of dinner gathering on a regular basis. I mean, in our house, it's basically besides tonight, Wednesday nights on the, on the day we're recording this, which is the night my sons go to youth group and my wife and I stay home and play Scrabble, uh, which is a fantastic ritual. 
we have these glorious family dinners every night. And I think, you know, I've, I've talked with you guys about this before, but the, it, it comes up over and over again. I think what you kind of mentioned, this has come up a couple of times regarding even something as seemingly insignificant as the smell and the aroma of food and that being tied via the olfactory receptors into this sense of belongingness and love. And that, that whole concept of like, you guys know when you walk into like grandma's house and all of a sudden you smell, you know, whatever. And, and my, my grandma was Italian too, Patrick, she'll appreciate this, you know, eggplant Parmesan or, you know, some fantastic Italian meal that she's cooking up. Like, it's a lot more than just smelling the food and salivating. It's like this, it's emotions that wash over you from years and years of grandma and giving her a hug and feeling that belonging in her home. And so, you know, food goes a long, long ways. Again, it seems like kind of like silly and insignificant, but as far as something that kids love to gather around and as a way to make life special for a kid growing up, that concept of of some type of dinner gathering, I think is is just as important as like that morning wake-up lounge. Yeah. And there's another one we would do, which was family dinners for us were really basically every night, except for if we were on our date or, you know, we were having dinner with friends, which we were pretty picky about with that because of family time. But just having a day of the week where the kids could choose uh, what to have or where to go like Monday night. And you just rotate that choice between each kid because it just involves them more in the experience. Yeah, they had like their favorite restaurants and we it started out, you know, Monday nights was we all go out to dinner, you know, as a family and uh, they'd and they'd argue over, you know, where they wanted to go. I want to go here. I want to go there. So finally, we just said we're going to rotate the decision every, you know, every Monday. It's the next person's turn to choose. And they still remember that, you know, from when they were young kids that, uh, you, know, what, you know, how fun it was to go out Mondays and whose turn was it to pick the restaurant. So, you know, they, these these things seem sort of inconsequential or, or maybe cute or trite, but the reality is they, they've got long lingering effects uh, on these kids into adulthood. Regarding the dinners, did you guys ever do the one-on-ones? What I mean by that is like, well we'll schedule times during the month. Typically this is, well, we're really doing like once a month now because we have some family dates out and about on this town. But once a month, I'll take one son to one restaurant and Jess will take the other son to another restaurant. Or sometimes we'll both go to the same restaurant, but I'll call ahead and request tables in separate areas of the restaurant. So we do these like one-on-one dates because the conversations with the kids are way different one-on-one versus when they're with their their other siblings. But did you guys do much in terms of the one-on-one time? We actually not only did it uh, as a rhythm in our life, you know, so it was a, another of those rituals, but uh, but we still do it. <laughs> I mean, at this point, even it's more at, important now than ever. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and very meaningful. Um, you know, so, yeah, when my kids were little kids. We'd have some time. You know, we'd, we'd take them out to dinner like a daddy daughter date or so. And sometimes it was a whole day. Yeah. You know, with one kid just spending the day. And, you know, fortunately, as an entrepreneur, you know, I had a lot of control over my schedule. So I had the flexibility to say I'm booking out Wednesday and I'm going into the city with my daughter for the day. And, and sometimes it was a trip yeah. for a couple of days. Of course, the million yeah. dollar question I got to ask you guys, since you're ahead of me with a 24 year old, a 20 year old and a 17 year old, uh, are, are you still paying for the meals or do the kids break out the credit card now? Well, they offer to. <laughs> we let them pay coffee and tea and things like that, but not usually dinners. Not yet. Yeah, they, uh, they, and to Lord's point, they actually do offer, but uh, at at this point, um, it's still sort of like you know, the tradition. I'm taking them out, and we sit. Uh, and I'm, I'm sure there's going to be a shift at some point where they're taking me out. <laughs> but they do take grandma out. They're allowed to pay for grandma's meals. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All right. So th- this next premise 
may rabbit hole a little bit, I, I sense, but you have one about education. Tell me, tell me the education premise. We, we traveled a lot. So we have a, we have a few premises around this. Um, but what we came to the conclusion, um, this one is that the most important education a child gets is outside of school, not inside of it. Institutionalized. And yes, we're maverick thinkers in many respects, and this is one of the areas. Um, but uh, our point of view is that, uh, you know, institutionalized education doesn't really set kids up for success for the most part. You know, you can certainly name ex- uh, exceptions, but if they're going to be fully aware, fully conscious, uh, fully actualized humans and adults, we felt the best education that we could give them was outside of schools, the schools where they went to learn the basic stuff. But we took them around the world, uh, different cultures, different languages, different foods, different you know things they see visually and start to learn about the world as a whole and then can start to contemplate what their what their place in it might be. We would align that with what they would be learning in school. So that was helpful or a language they were learning. Um, And we would also make sure that we would give them some money, like local money, and give them the opportunity to exchange money. And that's an entryway into the conversations about the economy or money or whatever's happening in that place. What mattress do I sleep on? Well, I'm picky. I'm very picky. I wanted a mattress that blocks EMF that increases deep sleep cycles based on my actual measurements, that actively cools my body even if I can't use one of those fancy bed top cooling thingamajigs, accelerates recovery, something my wife likes and I like, something that doesn't off-gas a bunch of chemicals, something that is designed using your health in mind and nothing else, no fancy bells or whistles or Wi-Fi or gadgets or springs or anything. Okay, this is like sleeping on the most natural surface imaginable. They've even done what's called dark film microscopy on people's blood cells when they sleep on this mattress and it actually allows your blood cells, your freaking blood cells to return to a natural free flowing state. That allows your bloodstream to optimize the oxygen flowing through your body, improves your body's nighttime recovery cycle, improves your sleep quality. Sleep is so important to me. You know that I'm super picky. I don't just sleep on stuff because people like give it to me. I sleep on stuff because I do the research and this mattress is top of the top. Essentia, E-S-S-E-N-T-I-A. You go to myessentia, M-Y-E-S-S-E-N-T-I-A, myessentia.com slash Ben Greenfield. Use code BENVIP. That'll get you an additional $100 off your Essentia mattress. So myessentia.com slash Ben Greenfield and use code BENVIP. I don't know if you guys have ever tried resistant starch. You get it from like green bananas or rice that you've cooled and cooked again. But basically, it is something that's amazing food for the gut and has some really, really beneficial effects on regulating blood sugar, on digestion, on mood, on sleep. Now, a lot of prebiotic fibers fall short in terms of their actual ability to be able to lower your blood sugar dramatically or give you those type of effects. But there's one that's actually been studied. It's a resistant starch fiber mix. It's clean. It's vegan. It's a gut health booster that's specifically designed to nourish the healthy bacteria in your small intestine. It's called super gut. And in a placebo-controlled clinical trial, the super gut resistant starch shake was proven to reduce hemoglobin A1C, which is a three-month snapshot of your blood sugar levels, by 0.7% over 12 weeks. The resistant starch fiber mix lowered blood sugar 22 to 42% after a meal. 
that's pretty good to know, especially coming up with all this holiday eating. You add one packet of it to your morning coffee or your smoothie, that gets you eight grams of prebiotic fiber to your morning routine, makes it super easy, it tastes really good, and it just solves all these issues with getting access to a good quality source of prebiotic fiber that actually has the effects on your blood sugar, your mood, your appetite, satiety, your sleep, et cetera, that folks are really looking for when it comes to resistant fiber. So if you haven't experienced what it feels like to have more resistance fiber in your diet or resistant starch in your diet, then SuperGut's the way to go. They're going to give all my listeners 20% off. You go to supergut.com slash Ben and use code Ben20 for 20% off your first purchase of the Supergut Gut Balancing Fiber Mix. That is supergut.com slash Ben and use code Ben20. Now, when I interviewed our mutual friends, John and Missy Butcher, they talked about how their kids went to public school. And I think Missy had to like go in and make special requests to be able to pull the kids out during times when they normally would have been required to be in school to get the family out to travel. And eventually I think she actually had, had pretty good blessing for most of the school, the teachers and the principals to be able to do that because they saw how their kids were evolving so much from that travel. Were, were, were you guys kids public school and you kind of run into the same thing? Yeah, that's correct about Missy. We we've been friends with them for gosh, our, our daughters, our sons are two weeks apart. Or, so 20 years. Whatever. A lot of our world travel was with them. Yeah. Oh, wow. So yeah, that, I learned a lot from Missy in terms of how to go about that. And it was easier once we moved to Park City because somehow they're wired differently here um, than New Jersey. But it's an issue. It's a real issue. And they don't take kindly to it. Um, but I think ultimately, in the end, we ended up, the kids ended up not wanting to be in school anyway. So it, we had to shift completely out of the school system. Our basic... Um history on this is that we've done private schools, we've done public schools, and we've done homeschool. We did it all. Oh, and, wow. and you know, it's, it's kind of like, you know, there's a season for everything. And there was a time when we weren't really feeling great about the, the public schools. So we put them into, you know, rather expensive private schools, and they spent some years there. But then we felt like, okay, that wasn't you know, quite right for them. Um, and, you know, we, and we moved and we moved to like Park City and the different school systems. We put them in public school here. But my friend Richard Rossi said something because we we're, we're really laboring over, do we homeschool them now? You know, they, they basically called, uh, you know, <laughs> and this was, I think the, the butcher kids instigated this in our kids because we just got back from Australia. They're like, hey, we want to go to Freedom University, meaning uh, homeschool, which was FU for short. Right? And, and, um, oh, I've never heard that before. That's great. <laughs> That's where our kids have a degree from. <laughs> yeah, our, our kids are you know, graduates of FU. So oh gosh, um, I'm going to be, t- I'm going to tell my kids that tonight at dinner, by the way. <laughs> so anyway, what, what happened was, um, and, and we were kind of laboring because, you know, of course it's a, this, a parent sweats this one saying, geez, you know, if my kids come out of school and then, you know, can they go to college and what, you know, does it limit their choices? And, you know, if, if we homeschool them, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, but our gut, our instincts were telling us, you know, it's just, you know, I'm looking at what's happening to them and it's, it's adverse. It's not, it's not supportive. And Richard Rossi, who's a friend of mine, an entrepreneur who does big education programs for high performing, you know, uh, high school kids and gets them on varying career tracks. And, I said, let me give him a call. And I'm, I'm thinking, you know, he's kind of more conservative, traditional. And when I called him up and said, you know, we're, we're kind of weighing this decision out and pulling the kids back out. They're, they're in high school and eighth grade. Like my, I think my daughter was a sophomore. My, my, my youngest son was eighth grade. My, my oldest was already in college at that point. 
And he said, well, first of all, I congratulate you for even considering it and thinking about it. Second, I did homeschool you know, uh, my kids for a couple of years, which I was shocked when I heard that. He said, but third, here's how I make the decision. The most important thing a kid needs to develop in their life is self-confidence. And the question you have to answer is, when they go to school every day, is their self-confidence being built or is it being destroyed? And if their self-confidence is built because they, they thrive in that type of an educational environment and can perform well, then great, they're in the right place. If they can't perform well in that particular, you know, my daughter's dyslexic, my son's got pretty you know, serious ADD, you know, they, they just don't, they learn differently. And if they, so if they're not, if their self-confidence is getting injured by showing up to school every day, then take them out. And, and it was that conversation where we said, that's it. They're going to F you. We're, they're out. <laughs> so we homeschooled them, you know, for those, those final years, uh, you know, of their education. And I'm certain that it was a really good decision. Hey, has Richard Rossi ever written a, a book that you would recommend on education or anything else? Like, Because I'm not that familiar with him, but if people wanted to learn more about Richard, what would be the best way to do that? No, I don't think he's written a book. Uh, his company is called uh, Da Vinci Education, I believe. Okay. And uh, like I said, I, I, Lori and I have been there. We helped him. So they kill out 5,000 kids in a room. He's got Nobel laureates and all these you know, amazing you know, high-level academic and scholarly people that are there to present to these kids. It's a very impressive thing. And for these kids, it's you know perfect because these are the kids who, you know, get 4.0 scores and you know 3.8 scores, you know, as far as their their GPAs and you know are applying to Ivy League schools and so on. But my kids, you know, simply just were not academics. They're brilliant. They each I, I you know, our prem our premise around this is that every person has some genius in them. Mm-hmm. It's discovering what that genius is that's the trick and, and what's important. And for our kids, you know, academic prowess is not their genius, but they have other forms of genius that are um, very impressive. And it's just a matter of fostering that and not getting their self confidence destroyed because you're trying to make them learn in a way that's not equipped for them. When you say other forms of genius, do you mean like art? No, genius in terms of what is their potent, their passion, their gift for the world. You know, what were they born to do that they're good at? Their superpower, in essence. They, you know, what's what? What is something that they have uncommonly great ability at doing? You know, my daughter is an artist. She's a singer songwriter, and she's extraordinarily gifted in that respect. But she's not going to be gifted if you throw her in a calculus class. Yeah, that's kind of what I meant. Like basically, you know, kids who are wired up for maybe like art, creativity, etc., you know, who may not be academic, who may not thrive with a university-based education. It seems like there's there's still that almost like that stereotype that yeah, you're you're going to be able to make art and your your job's going to be flipping burgers to actually make money, you know, that type of thing. Yeah, and that's my definition of hell. I mean, you really have to reverse the entire equation or uh, program that has been written for children. This is what you do. This is you go to school, you become what you're going to do to make money to, you know, go out into the world. And it's like, no, start first with what are they passionate about? What do they like? What are they good at? And, And then reverse engineer the whole thing. This is where we go back to philosophy and premises. You know, our premise is that every human being has special gifts and every human being has a purpose in this world. 
And usually a good clue to what that purpose is, is what are you good at? You, God wouldn't give you a purpose and make you not good at it. So where your strengths lie typically is where that innate purpose resides. And, and you know, the, the goal and the work is to uncover that, figure out what that is, find it, and then develop it, and then go put your gift into the world. And that's the way that you earn your living, not doing something that you know, destroys your spirit every single day. Yeah, that makes sense. It's it's um. There's actually a really good book, by the way. It's called uh, one of one of the better books on purpose and passion and marrying that with some type of a career or service to the world. It's called Ikigai 2.0. I found it as like this really cool free downloadable workbook on a, a website I follow called Slow Slow Co S L O W W Co. So if anybody's listening and they want kind of like a systematic way, I, I took my sons through it over the course of about six weeks. It's this idea of identifying what is your passion about, and we we took some some skills finding tests and things like that. Uh, so that, that's a great resource for that. But when it comes to the, the commercialization, or I suppose, you know, the, the boots on the ground, well, how do I actually feed myself using this skill? You know, my sons are, they're really creative artists, right? They're not very entrepreneurial and, and driven like I am in that respect. And that's something that that's kind of been difficult for me is trying to help them visualize, okay, how are you going to take these amazing artistic skills that you have in in painting and writing fiction and creating art and actually somehow monetize that? You know, in case in point, you know, just yesterday they were working on their their uh, their Threadless account. You know, speaking of John Butcher again, he introduced them to this this website called Threadless, where you can take your art and begin to make everything from skateboards to shoes to posters to coffee mugs, et cetera, out of it. But for you guys, it sounds like you had artistic children. I guess this is kind of a selfish question like how did you foster them actually thinking about how they were going to i guess more or less this this sounds kind of gimmicky but like make money out of their art i guess i is, is what i'm asking i think there's an understanding and you know a sort of a, a, a tension that life presents when you're faced with saying um i have to become self-responsible I have to learn to you know, make money, you know, um, uh, take care of myself, um, not be dependent on other people. And simultaneously, I have to find my passion and see if I can translate that passion into um, into the way that I make money. And there's there's phases of that. Um, and, you know, sometimes kids get it younger. Sometimes it takes a long time. So if I if I just ran the table here on our kids real quick. The 25-year-old has a degree in, in uh, from college in finance and economics, dual major. Uh, he has a passion about stock analysis, and and he's really good at it. He's talented at it, and and something that he you know doesn't have to be encouraged to think about. You know, he can't help himself. So, what did he do? Well, you know, he can't come out of college and suddenly get a job as an analyst and support stuff. But he's working at a bank, so he's kind of working in the industry. And in the meantime, you know, he works on his Instagram account, you know, friendly stock picks, you know, and, and, and you know, he gets on there and, and this is where he gets to express his passion. And little by little, as he gets better at it, learns it more, et cetera, I think I think eventually it will become, you know, his way of supporting himself in life. Uh, but in the meantime, he's got a job that's sort of relevant, but not directly his passion and is developing how to make a living in his passion. My daughter um, you know, she she found something I think was great. She, so she's a singer songwriter, extraordinarily gifted. I mean, you know, the songs that she's been writing since she was in her you know, 
12, 13 years old are still, I think, you know, phenomenal songs. And we help support that, you know, by having musical instruments around and, and, you know, the ability to record and so on and, you know, getting her into a studio and creating music. But she can't support herself on that. But she has another passion, which uh, I think probably came from us a little bit, which is coffee. And she is a really highly trained barista. She loves, you know, working with coffee, explaining coffee, you know, enters uh, competitions as a barista for latte art and all that kind of stuff. So she's paying her bills, making a living completely independent of us by working as a barista and continues to pursue her music. Uh, so she knows that music is her life and career, but doing you know, coffee is something that she has a passion around in the meantime. Our 18-year-old, um, you know, homeschooled, just, you know, finished his homeschooled high school. Uh, he's got a passion, you know, right now. He's And, he's you know, he's, he's kind of searching it out. But his main thing was that he, he thinks he's interested in the markets and in trading. And rather than paying college tuition, uh, we put him into a day trading course, which uh, he's actually in right now. He loves it. He's up every morning. He's, he's, he's training on, he's learning to day trade. He's actually trading himself, you know, trading small amounts right now to get his sea legs. And right now that's the direction he's headed. You know, he's 18. That could change obviously, but right now that's, that's what he's learning and what he's passionate about. So, you know, it's, it's, it's fortunate if at younger ages, you can figure that out. Some people maybe don't figure that out till they're in their thirties. Well, what's critical is the frame that you uh, raise them in that frame to ask the question, how do you want to live your life? And they see us and the way they live. And they are now recognizing as they become adults, wow, you guys really love your life and you, you're good at what you do. And so they're interested in that. So from, from a young age, just keeping engaged in what they're good at, what they're passionate about, and having them start to build their day and their life around how they want to feel. What are the kinds of things that they can do that bring that good feeling? And visualizing, right? Visualizing a future that brings them the life and the job opportunities that they want to step into. Yeah. And related to your your daughter, Antoinette's love for coffee. I mean, she's always going to have a job if she knows how to make magic with the with the most popular drug on the face of the planet. <laughs> <laughs> Talking about opening a coffee shop because of that. So yeah, It is kind of funny because that's exactly what my sons talk about. And like, I grew up with a dad as a gourmet coffee roaster. My brother and my dad used to go to the the uh, like the barista competitions where you where you flip the espresso uh Anyways, though, so so I'm I'm intimately familiar with the love for coffee, and it, it's a big thing in our house too. And my sons, they actually one of the things they've listed that they're super interested in doing is is opening up like a uh, like an art studio slash coffee shop. So I I wouldn't mind that. I have a place to hang out in my happy place. Exactly. Yeah, and and incidentally, you you wonder how much influence you have. Like you know, I love music. I love rock and roll. It's it's like a passion of mine. And, so, and and passion is one thing, but I'm I'm really not that talented. I mean, I, I you know, I, we have guitars and amps and piano and drums, everything you know in this house. They always have you know, set you know set up. And you know, if I so now it has to be a hobby because I just don't. It's not like a God-given gift I have. It's just something I enjoy doing that I'm not particularly good at. Um, but my daughter, on the other hand, you know, sitting in my lap when I play piano with her on my lap and sing you know songs to her, she has a gift. <laughs> so you know, so for her, it's turned into a career. But coffee also. So, you know, being coffee geeks, you know, we have a whole setup, you know, we, we fresh grind every morning, we source beans from all over the world, you know, we do that whole thing. And that's a part of that morning 
lounge, you know, that wake up lounge, that's a part of the ceremony that gets the lounge started. Not that we'd give it to our kids when they're young, but for us, and we gave, made them other drinks. But so you never know how much of that wears off and they just find the passion or how much of it was innate in them. I don't know. Yeah. My other two kids, you know, are indifferent to coffee mostly, but my daughter found a love of it. So it's, it's just finding what that is. Yeah. And I seem to recall you and I, uh, I, I'm pretty sure that we broke out the band at a random restaurant in Park City one evening where there was a piano and a guitar. And uh, I remember when I visited your house once, I was yeah. like, <laughs> yeah, that was that was actually a lot of fun. And uh, I was uh, I was uh, actually extraordinarily impressed with your uh, guitar playing. and singing. <laughs> I'm working on it. I'm working on it. I know we were just in Nashville. I'm actually heading back down to Nashville to to uh, cut an album pretty soon in the whole uh the, uh, the, the praise and worship, uh, music genre. So I'm still working on it. Okay. So uh, another question related to education, you had your kids, I don't know if all of them, maybe it was just one of them, but you had them read, uh, Atlas Shrugged, which is over in a, like that's over a thousand pages. I think I don't, I've never read the whole thing, but tell me why on earth you would have had your kid read Atlas Shrugged. You know, it's, yeah, it's an 1,100-page book. Uh, it was published in 1957. It is still in publication today after all these years. Uh, most people look at it kind of as a, you know, they, they, they almost wonder if, if Rand, Ayn Rand, the author, was, uh, was you know, some type of a clairvoyant. And uh, no, she just knew how to think and understood premises and how they'd play out. And Reader's Digest in their survey found that it was the second most influential book in the world after the Bible. Number one was the Bible. Number two was Atlas wow. Shrugged, ironically. And I've read it probably at least 11 times over the years. And the reason is that to me, it is a breathtaking, extraordinary view of the application of philosophy in life and what that can do to the world as far as how individuals live their life, what happens in society, et cetera. It is just this epic novel that once you read it and understand it, you know, it's, it's they call it philosophiction, right? Where it's a fictional story where philosophy is expressed, you know, it's, it's just an achievement to finish that book. And it it's a book that has had the biggest impact on me. As a matter of fact, when Lori and I met, you know, uh, you know, I gave her a copy to read and it was almost my vetting process. I want to see how she responded to the book <laughs> and that would tell me if she, you know, if we were right for each other <laughs> and, uh, and, and, you know, it turned out rather well. Uh, but uh, so I figured if it worked for my wife, it would work for my kids too. No, just kidding. But um, but it's an achievement to finish that book and actually understand or digest it. And um, so I just said, hey, I'm going to put a prize on this. If you can read the book and then pass an oral exam with me, um, you know, you get 500 bucks. And uh, so our oldest kid had done that, you know, read it. We had a conversation and it really helped shape his thinking um, and gave him confidence in his thinking. My daughter has started. She's not through it all yet. Uh, and, you know, my 18 year old, I, I think he'll get in gear at some point with it also. Uh, so I don't force them to read it, but I try to incentivize them to do so. And, and by doing so, I think it can have a massively positive impact on their life. Quick practical question: the oral exam that that you mentioned in the book, and I, I know you also give them that five hundred dollar award. But I'm constantly going through a book with my sons. What we do is I assign a book for the month, and we tend to do one to two chapters each night before dinner. So every night we we gather the whole family knows seven p.m. We're in the kitchen at that point. You know the people who have been assigned to a certain dish at dinner during our morning gathering actually have already kind of like started into their dish and prepared it. But then at seven we meet to review the. 
chapter or chapters of the book that we're, that we're going through as a family. Typically, it's like a five to 10 minute discussion. And then for the bigger books that I know are super meaningful, what I'll have at the end of the month is a paid book report where you know they can have the discussions with dad in the evening. But then if they complete the book report at the end of the month, they'll typically get paid. Usually, it's like $100, $200 around in that range. When, when you're doing something like an oral exam with your kids, you just kind of like, asking them questions about what they what what they read in the book or did you have any type of formal structure to the way that you'd have them do an oral exam about the book yeah you know it, it's it's and I, I use the term exam it's not like uh i'm grading and and you know uh, at the end it just basically tells me did they read it number one and number yeah. two did they capture you know the essence of of you know what was communicated so it's just a, a discussion which i have them mostly read I, i'll prompt with questions so it's more like an oral interview. I'm interviewing them about the book, and I want to see if they can, you know, if they understood it, if they could communicate it, and if they did, then I know they read it and and it was uh, they did what they were supposed to do. Yeah. Okay. Got it. There are a couple other premises that that you list that appear within the book, and I'm going to uh, to leave people with a little bit of a cliffhanger as far as a a few of the additional premises because. I would be remiss not to bring up the topic of meditation during the time that we have. I know, Lori, that you've been pretty involved with Dr. Joe Dispenza, and I'm curious how you guys wove that or other forms of meditation into your parenting. You're correct that that's my background. And I think it began with ourself, right? It always begins with us personally. So Patrick and I each building our own meditation practice was key. Um, my son even reminded me of a time that he got really angry when he was really little and told me he was going to go, go run away. And and then he came back to see if I was, uh, you know, upset or, you know, whatever. And I was in my room meditating, which just made me laugh. And it, it's, it's, a, it's just a, it's a solid way as a parent to keep sanity other than red wine, which we called patience in a bottle. But <laughs> But um, it's it's really how we build our whole life. <laughs> we build our whole life now around the principles we've learned through meditation, and specifically Joe Dispenza is one of our favorites um, in terms of really creating the space in the mind, soul, body to you know have the coherent brain and heart to live your life from. So bringing that into parenting meant and has meant we become the person who is centered and can listen to them and can be natural in the way that we are as a human so that they can observe that, right? And have this beautiful relationship as they get older. We have teenagers who don't want us to leave town still. They want to hang out with us all the time. You know, our teenage years weren't a stress. And as they become young adults, I can say, I love my relationship with each kid. And I think it's based in the fact that meditation has been such a huge part of our life. Now, when it comes to the practicalities of meditation, I'm kind of curious how you actually do that. Like, did you take your kids to an actual retreat after which they'd keep on practicing certain elements of what they learned there on a daily basis? Or did, or did you have some other approach? Yeah, yeah. So in this case, we did do a seven-day week-long uh, you know, dispensa meditation retreat. Uh, which at the time I was working at or volunteering, whatever you want to call it, assisting. And um, my kids came with me. We all went as a family. But and there was so actually my daughter's done more than one. 
Um, but yeah, that's how you do it. In our case, they came to the event, they had the experience and were in the energy of it. And that seven days for our daughter, especially was um, transformative because she was able to, and I think it was in a very specific walking meditation that he had um, them doing that she was able to really see her future as a singer. And she saw some of her issues with anxiety were able to come up and she was able to there was a great, beautiful space between her and her anxiety, and she could see that she could make choices in her life around this. And and there were many other things she got, but in, in our case, it was um, that, and then also just teaching them how to bring that practice into their life. So our daughter does meditate. Uh, I can't say that our sons do. I think our, our oldest has definitely tried and trying, and the 18-year-old, you know, not not so much, but he is really working on manifesting and his his mindset and starting his day the right way. So we're getting there. Now, as far as the, uh, like the, the Joe Dispenza retreats, if people were interested in bringing one of their kids to something like that, is there like an age range that you think is appropriate or? He does uh, a specific kids event. Everything's on his website. So the, the kids event I think is really, you know, highly recommended um, in terms of the week long. I've seen young kids there. Um, gosh, I think seven or eight. I mean, as long, as long as they can sit still, listen, pay attention and do meditation, uh, they can go. And I've seen these kids out on the walking meditations with their headphones on. And they're just as, you know, I'm in tears seeing their, you know, their commitment to walking through this with with a thousand other adults. Um, it's beautiful. And he honors, he really honors children. That's really cool. And I've been interested in taking my wife to one. Yeah. I hadn't thought about taking the, my sons, but it's, it's kind of like on my radar. I've wanted to go to one ever since you guys have been telling me about them, but I, maybe I'll just make it a family event. I don't know. You think, you think, uh, that'd be appropriate to bring like Jessa and, and my sons who are 14 now? You know, absolutely. Because then you come home as a family, you're transformed. Transformation happens because it's seven days long. You can't yeah. not leave a different person. Yeah. And so if you're changed, that's one thing and that's great. But to have the whole family go in and come home with that energy between you, it's, it's, it's beautiful. Okay. Cool. I'm adding that to the to the list. I always take take notes about about uh, you know calls to action post podcasts. I always wind up every week, you know, interviewing a few people a week with a whole checklist of stuff to look into. So thank you. I was kind of remiss to ask this question. It's probably the last thing I'm going to cover with you guys, but there is a part of the book where you say, "Don't subjugate your inner knowing." to external experts who don't know you, your values, or your child. And the reason I was a little bit nervous to bring this up was because obviously we're talking about a book on parenting in which you're reading about external experts who don't know you, your values, or your child and trying to get information from them. So so tell me about that. And if, if there was a specific scenario or example from your own parenting in which that really fleshed itself out. You know, it, it, and I'm hoping to your point about the book and our, ch our chapter, at least, um, is that you know we're, we're giving ideas and suggestions. In other words, we're saying it's important to have premises. We're not telling you what your premises should be. We're right. saying it's important to have values, but we're not telling you what values you should have. And and to me, the whole point is you know with education and raising children and so on is you know our premise around this is we want to teach them how to think, not what to think. That's what I think this is really about. There's so many self-styled experts out there who have agendas. I mean, I'm, I'm horrified, quite frankly, with some of the things I'm seeing today and some, you know, school boards, how they get together and what they're trying. They have an agenda for these children as if, and there's a battle right now between saying, 
are these students uh, to be brought up by the state or are they to be brought up by the parents, you know, uh, and are the parents supposed to have the influence over, you know, how these kids are brought up? You know, there's, there's fundamental uh, principles, you know, philosophical principles at, at play here that are serious and significant. And one of the things that I get concerned about is when a parent substitutes their own judgment, their own innate connection and instinct that they have for the child to an expert, you know, and I feel the same way incidentally about going to a doctor and going, you know, it's like, you have to know, you know, we have a health philosophy, a certain way we approach things. So we know when we're getting recommendations that are consistent with our philosophy or they're in contradiction to our philosophy, doesn't mean we don't need help or support. Doesn't mean that we're not looking for it. But I've got to start with who are we? What are our values? That's why it goes all the way back. If I know our values, our purpose, and our premises, now I can read a book like like you know your book, Ben, on this. I can go through it and I can see the things that I relate to that would be supportive and help me and advance me in my agenda as a parent. And I can also look at the other things and say, oh, that one's not for me. Doesn't mean they're bad. Doesn't mean they're wrong. It's just not for me. And uh, and this is this is critical. So we need ideas. We need stimulation. We need books. We need the collective wisdom of people who have you know had experiences, have have applied you know what they've done in their life, and and now can share their success and failures. And incidentally, I many times learn a lot more from people's failures than their successes. So they can share all that, and then I can take from that. But I am the responsible party. I don't subjugate my judgment for somebody else's. That's what it means to be self-responsible. Um, so you can tell I'm, I'm a bit passionate about that as a as a particular point of view. I encourage all people think, use your own mind, your own judgment. But it doesn't mean you can't learn from other people. You can't you can't improve on your your life or your parenting from by learning from other people, but never subjugate your own views or your own values because some expert told you that you should do it a different way. And I would only add to that, feel, think and feel, feel your in, your own intuition as a person and teach your kid to feel their intuition. It's what's natural. How does nature occur around us? Look, look outside. There's no straight lines in nature. How does a tree, you know, lose its leaves? It's, it's just trusting a little bit the process of being a human and really being able to use your heart to guide you in decisions and not becoming a program. Yeah. It's interesting because this book has advice, obviously, from like 30 different parents. And there's, you know, parents do different things from a nutrition standpoint, from a sleep standpoint, from a discipline standpoint, from an ex- education standpoint, for travel, like you name it. But what I've been telling people, you know, as I'm getting close to releasing this book is just, Read it. Pick from the best of the best. Sit with what resonates with you. Because if you try to like pick up every last parent's habits and weave them all into your own parenting routine, A, you're going to have no time left in the day. And B, you're going to be pulling your hair out trying to squeeze in, I don't know, Brian Johnson Liver King's morning kettlebell workout that he does with his kids and to, you know, Joe DeSena's, you know, wrestler coming over to train your kids at 4 a.m. in the morning to the Gen Tempo's wake up lounge. Like you can't do it all, (laughs) but you want want to choose the stuff that that resonates with you. And and then definitely read the common threads because in the common threads, you come across a lot of the stuff that's so much your guys' premises, you know, more is caught than taught, prioritize family dinners schedule one-on-one dates and make them intentional, 
be present at the dinner table, et cetera, et cetera. Like there are certain things kind of like nutrition. It's like no matter what diet uh, in all these blue zone hotspots and areas of centenarians that you look at, there are common threads. Like you eat together, typically, you know, almost no vegetable oils, very low levels of starches and added sugars, you know, food that's as close to nature as possible. Some type of tea or coffee or highly tannic or polyphenol rich drink consumed on a daily basis. So it's like no matter whether you're, you're following the macronutrient ratios or whatever else, there's certain key threads that you follow and so if you approach your your parenting uh your, your parenting recipe your parenting cookbook like that then i think it's a really good way to go and you guys contributed a great deal of wisdom to this book so i i guess i just want to end by saying thank you for your contribution and i can't wait to unleash your wisdom upon the world here thanks ben i'm really glad you're doing this because i think it's it's overwhelming to be a parent and i think we have to watch out for perfectionism and trying to have perfect kids and us be perfect parents it's just not realistic so i think it's great your style and approach for doing this and thanks for having us yeah i mean there's a lot of important topics that that you cover um and i i don't know that there's a more important topic than parenting it literally you know the responsibility hey if we screw up our own lives it's one thing but you know if we screw up the lives of uh, of other people that becomes a problem and people who are willing to engage in and take seriously the the concept of parenting but at the same time have a lot of fun it should be the most fun thing you ever do in your life quite frankly but understand that it is important um and i have to say that i didn't have the opportunity like there were books on parenting some things we had references to but nobody put together something comprehensive like this that didn't come from an academic, you know, an ivory tower scholar, but literally real parents in the real world living it every day. Uh, I, I think this book is is going to be revelatory and, and uh, should have a massively positive impact. So, number one, thank you for including us. And number two, um, congratulations. It's, it's quite an epic effort you put into this. Awesome. Well, the show notes for today are at bengreenfieldlife.com slash gentempo, G-E-N-T-E-M-P-O. So bengreenfieldlife.com slash gentempo. The book's at boundlessparentingbook.com. Patrick, Lori, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having us. All right, folks, I'm Ben Greenfield, along with Patrick and Lori Gentempo from bengreenfieldlife.com. Have an amazing week. All right, this is cool, but you want to pay attention because it's coming up right around the corner on Friday. December 2nd, you're going to get a chance to join me and some really powerful healing physicians down in Sarasota, Florida. This is a live event. It goes from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. I'll be there. My friend and a brilliant former podcast guest, the Dr. Strange of Medicine, Dr. John Lawrence is going to be there. HBOT USA, Dr. Jason and Melissa Saunas are going to be there with their hyperbaric oxygen therapy. Brian Richards of Sauna Space, Harry Paul, uh, one of John's friends who I recently met, who's also an amazing healer for an event that's super unique. It's all based around the elements, earth, fire, air, and water with a ton of treatments and technologies and modalities and very unique biohacks that you're going to get exposed to during the entire event. Basically, what I mean by that is when it comes to air, you're going to learn about hyperbaric oxygen and ozone and air filtration, everything you need to know to upgrade your air. When it comes to earth, pulsed electromagnetic field therapy, earthing, grounding, a host of other ways that you can use the power of the planet to enhance your health, your sleep, your recovery, your muscle gain, your fat loss, a lot more more water. You'll learn about proper water filtration, how to upgrade your water, hydrogenated water, structured water, basically soup to nuts, everything you need to know about water and how to apply it in your home, in your office, in your life. And then finally, fire. 
This is a fun one. Lots of cryotherapy, a little bit of ice too, breath work, inner fire practices, a ton of stuff when it comes to introducing the element of fire into your life. So this event is super unique. John and I have been working on it behind the scenes and it has come together amazingly. There's even a VIP experience. If you sign up for the VIP experience, you could come two days early or stay a few days after the event. And basically, uh, you will get all the medical protocols customized by Dr. John and his staff if you claim one of those 10 VIP spots. That'll include like IV methylene blue, laser treatments, John's really unique bliss release, which is basically an endonasal adjustment, which is essentially like a chiropractic adjustment through your nose for your entire skull, which if you've had TBI or concussion or allergies or things like that in the past, it totally reboots that entire system. There's going to also be uh, ozone treatments, Myers IV cocktails, exosome treatments, IV laser, access to a CVAC machine, and John's entire facility is going to be at your beck and call if you got one of the VIP tickets. And then we're also probably going to have a little bit of a party later on in the evening after this event. The whole thing is going to be a pinch me, I'm dreaming, full on cutting edge of biohacking experience. And I'm just now letting the world know about it. So spots are going to fill up pretty fast. Space is limited. But if you want to get in now, here's how. You go to bengreenfieldlife.com forward slash elements dash event. That's bengreenfieldlife.com forward slash elements dash event. It's in Sarasota, Florida. Again, it's all day Friday, December 2nd. I would come in early and stay after if you just want to try out all the crazy modalities there. You know, I don't know how fast those VIP tickets are going to sell out, but either way, this thing is going to be absolutely amazing. I just can't wait. Like I'm pinching myself. Can't wait to be on the plane to head down there and do this. So check it out. Ben Greenfield life forward slash elements dash event. And I'll see you there. I hope. More than ever these days, people like you and me need a fresh, entertaining, well-informed and often outside the box approach to discovering the health and happiness and hope that we all crave. So I hope I've been able to do that for you on this episode today. And if you liked it, or if you love what I'm up to, then please leave me a review on your preferred podcast listening channel, wherever that might be. And just find the Ben Greenfield Life episode. Say something nice. Thanks so much. It means a lot.